So now we are going to start the November issue of uh, environment. The first topic is Delhi air pollution. It was in news recently because uh, there have been debates over the contribution of various sources of air pollution in Delhi. Uh, increasing air pollution is one of the most important environmental issues engaging the attention of one and all. The situation of air pollution peaks with uh, the onset of winters every year. The key sources of air pollution in Delhi are vehicles, combustion in power plants and industries, garbage burning, dust management on roads, construction sites, and crop residue burning. But uh, there have been analysis of uh, various sources of pollution. The first source being the prime suspect, which is crop stubble burning in Punjab, Haryana, Western Uttar Pradesh. So if you combine the harvesters leave more crop residue and uh, there are various uh, better machines, but their usage is low. According to the problem, Punjab Preservation of Subsoil Water Act was passed in 2019. According to this act, the farmers can no longer sow rice in April, but have to wait until the middle of the June. Haryana too has followed Punjab and passed a similar law. So the paddy sowing and harvesting cycle has been artificially shifted by about two months. And uh, since 2009, farmers have only 15 days to ready their land for wheat sowing. The next is wind pattern. So uh, most of the time wind in the Delhi is from northwest and sometimes from the west. Wind mass as it travels over Punjab, Haryana, parts of Rajasthan before entering Delhi may pick the pollutants on their way. Thus stubble burning during winter is one of the chief causes of rising air pollution However, is largely a temporary spike based on the Terry and ARAI source apportionment study. The sources of pollutants over entire winter season, especially during the days when agricultural burning is prominent, are shown below. So, what are these sources of pollution during these uh, days? Is vehicular emissions. Vehicular emissions, then uh, industries. As per Terry report, which is a TERI study, industries contribute 30% of the PM 2.5 levels with 14% from small industries. Then there is dust. And next is municipal solid waste. Approximately 8,000 tons of municipal solid waste is generated in Delhi every day. And the last is brick kiln. Outskirts of Delhi have roughly 360 brick kiln majorly scattered in Jhajar, Faridabad, Ghaziabad region. So overall, based on five emission inventory studies on Delhi NCR, transport sector is the largest emitter of PM 2.5 particles and road dust is the largest contributor of PM 10 particles. This is the thing which you need to remember. Then what are the reasons for limited success of pollution control actions? An efficient governance mechanism is central to the success of any anti-pollution effort. So obviously we needed a government action plan. But why it is limited? Because unfortunately the graded response action plan notified by EPCA is being implemented by at least 16 different agencies. Which is unfortunate because any project which is being implemented by 16 different agencies will definitely lead to some kind of lethargic implementation of that particular scheme. The next reason is Delhi's air pollution is a regional problem. By regional problem here we mean that uh, Punjab, Haryana along with Delhi and other states need to work together in order to come to a solution. And uh, no policy is likely to work unless there is a regional consideration into account. Next is Delhi needs to search for sources of emissions. During the past decade there have been 16 source apportionment studies while resources or sources of emissions remain same. The contribution from different sources to Delhi's pollution varies greatly. This, uh, this only underscores both the unreliability of the existing studies as well as difficulty in making accurate estimate. And lastly, is Delhi lacks infrastructure.
so what are the reason that that lead to the limited success of pollution control action is because an efficient governance mechanism is the, at the central so we don't have an efficient governance mechanism and uh, also because delhi's air pollution is a regional problem and delhi needs to search for the sources of emission and finally delhi lacks infrastructure but there have been some success stories we have taken from china china's success story says that in order to address the pollution crisis in beijing the chinese government has adopted an approach of unified planning unified monitoring and alerting and unified standards in multiple contiguous regions in 2017 combined work plan was adopted for beijing tianjin that demanded 2 plus 26 cities to decrease average pm 2.5 concentration and the number of heavy pollution days by more than 15% from the previous year for combined monitoring and inspection system beijing environmental protection inspection team is responsible for 15 provinces so that was it about uh, the delhi pollution in the november issue our next topic is action plan for cleaner industry recently niti aayog released the report on clean industry prepared by task force led by niti aayog and confederation of indian industry niti aayog being a ci along with cii launched their joint initiative of clean air better life what is cii it is basically confederation of indian industry it was founded in 19 1895 oldest 1895 It is a non-government, not-for-profit industry-led and industry-managed organization. Its primary goal is to develop Indian industry and to ensure that government and society as a whole understand both the needs of industry and its contribution to the nation's well-being. So, what are the sources of industrial air pollution in Delhi NCR? Is uh, the task force considers three key air pollutants. road soil dust fly ash and secondary particles the different industrial activities contributing to emission of these pollutants are broadly classified as fugitive particulate matter emission fugitive particulate matter emissions which is basically the emissions that are coming out from uh, non point sources as opposed to the specific discharge from the point sources are called fugitive emissions then there are other uh, energy related emissions which is uh, coming out from diverse industrial subsectors like diesel generator sets from various sectors like telecom it hospitality and uh, gaseous emissions which is of sulfur dioxide and nitrogen dioxide from coal based thermal power generation units within 300 kilometers of delhi use of coal and wood for firing tandoors in hotel and restaurant is also one of the major source of energy related emissions then what are the recommended action plan for clean industry so according to the task force the action plan for clean industry is prevention and control of fugitive pm emissions can be done by mandatory contractual obligations for clean construction to building permits approvals by ministry of environment forest and climate change then secondly what we can do is linking of green incentives to green uh, clean construction practices so we can uh, under the ratings like griha igbc and leeds so these are the three ratings under which we can provide clean construction practices for clean construction practices we can provide green initiatives and incentives then mandatory funds allocation for ambient air quality management It is recommended that for the cities which are non-compliant to national ambient air quality standards, corporate environmental responsibility funds are spent for air quality improvement in the air shed. Then strengthening the building code and building bylaws for ambient air quality. It is recommended that the unified building code is adopted at national level for addressing various aspects of building and promoting adherence to code across all commercial and urban residential buildings. then developing the capacity of urban local bodies so this was the uh, these were the steps what is it contractual obligation green incentives mandatory fund allocation for quality air quality management 
then strengthening building code and building bylaws for air quality and developing the capacity of urban local bodies all this is under the prevention and control of fugitive pm emissions which is particulate matter then what should be the mitigation steps for energy related emissions prioritizing clean fuels and technologies like gas based thermal power unit and coal based thermal power units with advanced emission control of sulfur dioxide nitrogen dioxide and particulate matter incentives for biomass co-firing other than this leaf frogging to advanced biomass co-firing coal plants in the northwestern region and now what is this biomass co-firing i'll tell you later but uh, these are the mitigation steps for energy related emissions so what is it clean fuel prioritization then uh, fuel switch in diesel generators host hotels and restaurants emission norms for all diesel generators and pollution under control regime pollution under control regime basically recommends a strengthened real time pollution under control regime involving innovative and cost effective monitoring compliance measures such as random check using portable emission measurement system and crowdsourcing of compliance helpline for reporting visibly polluting diesel equipment yeah now coming back to the biomass co-firing biomass co-firing stands for adding biomass as a partial substitute fuel in high efficiency coal boilers co-firing is a low cost option to convert biomass to electricity in an efficient and clean way and to reduce greenhouse gas emissions of the power plant existing policy from ministry of power recommends co-firing up to 5 to 10% biomass in existing coal thermal power units now the next topic is road map for access to clean cooking energy in india road map for access to clean cooking energy in india <clears throat> basically in this we'll try to find out only the relevant stuff related to pre and mains so this road map for access to clean cooking energy why it is in news because uh, a report titled this <coughs> was released it was released uh, basically developed by niti ayog and giz which is a german development agency and council on energy environment and water a report prescribes strategies to eliminate use of all cooking arrangements that cause household air pollution in india by 2025 the 60th round of nsso revealed that over 2/3 of the households in rural india still relied on firewood cow dung and their primary cooking fuel needs then uh, burning biomass for cooking results in hap what is this hap high air pollution household air pollution sorry sorry So the report prescribes strategies to eliminate use of all cooking arrangements that cause household air pollution in India by 2025. The 60th round of NSSO revealed that two-thirds of the households in rural rural India relied on firewood and cow dung. So burning biomass for cooking results in household air pollution, which causes 8 lakh premature death every year. And as of April 2019, 94% of the Indian households have an LPG connection. However, recent study of uh, six of the most energy excess deprived states like Bihar, Jharkhand, Madhya Pradesh, Odisha, Uttar Pradesh and West Bengal suggested that about one third of the rural population use LPG as their primary cooking fuel. Only one third, but originally how many have LPG? 94% of the Indian households. So what are the guiding principles of the clean energy system? clean cooking energy roadmap so what we have to do is a contextualized approach particular to each region for example the colder regions such as himachal and uttarakhand it is important to make alternatives for space heating and other heating requirements because there they need to you know heat up the space also households and for that they have inbuilt uh, heating areas and they use uh, firewood for that which we need to provide another alternatives and multidimensional and multi fuel approach in rural areas with an adequate cattle population the focus should be on completing lpg with biogas then uh, multi stakeholder approach to improve adoption by aligning the interest and integrate the role of all the relevant actors in the sector an ecosystem based approach in order uh, address challenges across the value chain 
एक्सेस टू क्लीन कुकिंग एनर्जी एज ए डेवलपमेंटल गोल बाई इंटीग्रेटिंग एक्सेस टू क्लीन कुकिंग एनर्जी इन टू एग्जिस्टिंग गवर्नमेंट स्कीम्स इन द वेरियस मिनिस्ट्रीज सो वॉट आर द गाइडिंग प्रिंसिपल्स ए कंटेक्चुअलाइज अप्रोच पर्टिकुलर टू ईच रीजन लाइक एच पी विच इज हिमाचल प्रदेश उत्तराखंड देन मल्टी डायमेंशनल मल्टीफ्यूल अप्रोच इन रूरल एरियाज कैटल पॉपुलेशन फोकस शुड बी ऑन कॉम्प्लीमेंटिंग एल पी जी विद बायोगैस then uh, multi stakeholder approach which is uh, aligning interest and integrative role of various sectors then ecosystem based approach which is uh, in order to address challenges across value chains like uh, various ministries enterprises oil marketing and urban gas then access to clean cooking energy as a developmental goal by integrating access to clean cooking energy into existing government scheme now what are the strategies to improve access to clean cooking energy solution basically fuel like lpg the strategy we need to adopt is invest in the r&d to improve the thermal efficiency and uh, for piped natural gas we need to adopt prepaid meters that allow recurring payment of small amounts decentralize the supply distribution of lng and credit linked installments the other strategies that have been taken till now and should be taken are uh, to improve the awareness of the health impact of the traditional biomass chulas uh, by the help of asha anganwadi workers and to you know um, uh, have closest access points and innovative practices with the help of lpg panchayat then understanding the market and consumers by a context based consumer segmentation with respect to their food habits and understanding the social and cultural factors such as political will local network and influencers a one solution fits all approach is not going to work here and focus on aspect of kitchen design and ventilation so basically out of uh, as of uh, 2011 about uh, 40% of the houses in india did not have separate kitchen designs for better ventilation could be promoted under pradhan mantri awas yojana and improving data availability for energy access and leverage alternate financing solutions to complement public funds by strategically unlocking private investments in clean cooking energy sector like carbon finance next is uh, we need to you know understand this road map project or this report with the help of uh, governmental aspect like which government government ministry is working for it so Ministry of New and Renewable Energy is implementing various programs with a view to provide alternate cooking solutions. Like for example, the Unnat Chulha Abhiyan launched in June 2014 for promotion of improved biomass cook stove to reduce consumption of fuel wood with higher efficiency and low emissions. Next is National Biogas and Manure Management Program for setting up of family type household biogas plants for meeting cooking energy needs of rural and semi urban areas and to save the use of firewood next is promoting solar cooker cooker to reduce the indoor air pollution that was it about the road map for energy so next topic is emissions gap report this emissions gap report is recently uh, launched by united nations environment program it's a 10th ed- edition basically this is the 10th edition now about the report it is an annual science based assessment of the gap between the countries pledge on greenhouse gas emission reduction and the reduction required to deliver global temperature increase below 2 degrees celsius the report also identifies key opportunities for each country to increase the pace of emission reduction what they need to do basically and the emission report measures and projects three key trend lines what are the three key trend lines first is the amount of greenhouse gas emission every year up to 2030 they tell you how much greenhouse gas emission you have to reduce this year up to 2030 then the commitment countries are making to reduce their emission and the impact these commitments are likely to have an overall emission reduction so basically we can say that for example if uh, india has adopted this uh, approach this target of 20 to 25% reduction in the greenhouse gas emission from 2005 levels so this uh, report will tell us what will be the impact of these targets globally and if they are really helping or not and uh, the pace at which the third point which the gap, gap report measures is 
the pace at which emissions must be reduced to reach an emission low that would limit temperature increase to 1.5 degree celsius affordably now what are the key findings of the report the top 4 emitters are china usa eu and india imagine eu is basically collectively all the countries and india alone which is not a good news for us because uh, all these four emitters they contribute 55% of the total gas uh, sorry uh, global greenhouse gas emissions excluding emissions from land use change such as deforestation the china eu 28 india mexico russia turkey are projected to meet their target with current policies but uh, india russia turkey are projected to overperform their targets by around 15% India Russia and Turkey in 2018 the world emitted a record high of 55 gigaton of co2 equivalent greenhouse gas emission up from the previous record of 54 the report warns that the world has to cut its emission by 7.6% each year between 2020 to 2030 to get on track towards the 1.5 degree temperature goal of the paris agreement the report says collective ambition in nationally determined contribution must increase more than fivefold over current levels to deliver the cuts needed over the next decade now there is something related to this is uh, world meteorological organization greenhouse gas bulletin showed that globally average concentration of carbon dioxide reached 400 parts per million in 2018 407 up from 405 in 2017 So that was it about the emissions gap report now the next topic is report on the quality of pipe drinking water So the Department of Consumer Affairs this is what you need to remember is Department of Consumer Affairs has released a report on the quality of pipe drinking water in major cities in India About the report is that the test was conducted by Bureau of Indian Standards and the test was conducted on various parameters like what are the parameters organoleptic and physical test chemical test toxic substances and bacteriological test in the first stage but uh, there uh, there are findings and the findings are that most of the majority of the samples have failed to comply with the requirements of indian standards in one or more parameters so basically majority of the samples failed delhi has abysmal water quality Chennai Kolkata rank very low Mumbai is the only city with acceptable results Now we need to find out find out why Mumbai has a clean drinking water The reason is because Mumbai harvest water from a uh, rainwater sources and uh, they use uh, they stopped using steel pipes for surface distribution instead of that uh, what they have done is they have uh, now it is being channeled the water is being channeled through 14 underground concrete water tunnels then severe uh, several slums the crisscrossing network of pipes has been replaced with single 6 inch pipe and the water testing labs have been upgraded by neri which is national environmental engineering research institute now what are the causes of poor water quality in india the reason is because we focus on chlorination it only kills bacteria and other microorganisms but uh, the smell taste is ignored and moreover the dissolved uh, salts alkalinity and toxic metals in water cannot be eliminated by it then contamination in the pipes because the pipes are leaking then groundwater pollution which is uh, severely contaminated by carcinogenics like uh, arsenic lack of accountability in the sense that most of the time the com- the companies that are supplying water are the same who are testing water so you know conflict of interest happens and lack of coordination is there between union state and local government since water is a state subject and other factors is of course rapid urbanization water pollution etc now what is the other relevant information related to this as per composite water management index cwmi report with nearly 70% of the water contaminated india ranks 120th out of 122 countries in global water quality index which is uh, not good news then uh, central groundwater board estimates that nearly a fifth of the urban local bodies are already facing a water crisis 
due to excessive extraction, failed monsoon and unplanned development. Now what are the consequences of poor water quality? So basically as we all know it will be harmful for health. Around 80% of the diseases in developing countries are attributed to poor quality of water supply. So uh, in the water we can see there are so many pollutants, contaminants like uh, bacterial, viral, protozoa, pesticides, heavy metals, lead, fluoride, nitrate etc. But they also causes to certain kind of diseases that we definitely should know which is bacterial infections. What kind of diseases do they contribute? Ask yourself. So bacteria leads to typhoid, cholera, paratyphoid fever, bacillary dysentery, bacterial infections. Then what are viral infection diseases? Basically the diseases that happens due to viral infections are infectious hepatitis which is jaundice and poliomyelitis. Viral infection is jaundice and polio. Protozoal infection is amoebic dysentery. Then pesticides leads to reproductive and endocrinal damage and heavy metals lead to damage of the nervous system and the kidney and other metabolic disruptions. Lead, fluoride and nitrates affects the central nervous system, yellowing of the teeth and damage to the spinal cord, digestive tract cancers. Other than the harmful health effects, high economic cost as increased out of the pocket expenditure for healthcare, reduced lower productivity, then reinforces pollution positive feedback loop. Result of poor drinking water is the prime reason for the sale of plastic bottle drinking water. However, this bottled water gives rise to plastic pollution that increases water pollution. Then wastage of resources, basically reverse osmosis purification systems waste more than double the amount of water that uh, they produce for drinking. This we already know as we all have filters at our homes. But uh, what is the way forward out of this? We need to have a database support system, mandatory compliance to Bureau of Indian Standards for water quality, Pricing of water, better management, technological solution, rainwater harvesting under Jal Jeevan mission. Now what are the government initiatives uh, for water related projects is Jal Jeevan mission is the project that launched union government, launched by union government to ensure Hargar Jal pipe water supply to all the rural households by 2024 under the Department of Drinking Water and Sanitation Jal Sakti Ministry. Then Mission Bhagirath is a project for safe drinking water for every village and city household in which state? Telangana. The project will supply clean drinking water source from River Godavari and River Krishna. Our next topic is e-flow norms for River Ganga. The e-flow norms notified by National Mission for Clean Ganga. So now we are going to start the sixth topic of the November issue itself. Our topic is e-flow norms for River Ganga. The e-flow norms notified by National Mission for Clean Ganga to be enforced from December 2019. E-flow or environmental flow is notified in September 18 by NMCG which is an apex body for cleaning Ganga and environmental flow refers to minimum flow of water the ecological quality of river must be maintained by maintaining a minimum flow in order to conserve the hydrological and ecological functions. E-flow norms stipulate what volume of water that dams and barrages must release to allow the water to allow the river to naturally clean itself and protect its aquatic biodiversity. So uh, the 2018 e-flow notification specifies that the upper stretches of the Ganga from its origin in the glaciers and until Haridwar would have to maintain 20% of the monthly average flow, which I believe this information is not relevant. What you need to focus on is on, it means that enough water need to be released in the downstream of the river Ganga after utilizing the water for the development projects. Then uh, Namami Gange program is an integrated con integrated conservation mission approved in June 2014 
with the budget outlay of rupees 20000 crore to accomplish the twin objectives of effective abatement of pollution conservation and rejuvenation of national river ganga the mission for ganga rejuvenation constitutes restoring the wholesomeness of the river defined in terms of ensuring a viral dhara continuous flow and nirmal dhara which is unpolluted flow and geologic and ecological integrity concerns with the norms inadequate minimum flow norms after draft ganga act justice girdhar malviya panel suggested stricter provision than these specifications to increase accountability and responsibility for cleanliness and un- un- uninterrupted flow lack of guidelines for projects along with minimum flow guidelines also need to be laid out for the modifications that projects need to make no mention of aquatic biodiversity the amount of water that is required to ensure that the species is able to migrate freely is not considered while framing the limits the limits to the purpose of e flow that is to ensure free migration of these species environmentalist view some environmentalists are of the view that the hydroelectric projects as well as mining in haridwar kumbh region should be banned completely to endure natural flow of the river because uh, also the owners of three dams have uh, said that they cannot increase the flow of these reservoirs as uh, required by notification because it would reduce their power generation capacity and lead to huge financial losses so there is no mechanism to compensate for the revenue losses of these projects and what should be the way forward though there is temporary financial loss in the larger interest of the river which is responsible for everyone's existence the norms shall be implemented without fail by bringing all stakeholders on board the notification for the ganga should pave way for e flows notification of the yamuna and other rivers as some environmentalists claim the norms are insufficient they shall be revised periodically as per needs energy storage system roadmap now next topic is energy storage system roadmap this india smart grid forum has prepared a report titled energy storage system roadmap for india for the period of 2019 to 2032 about india smart grid forum it is a public private partnership initiative to the ministry of power government of india the india smart grid forum has evolved as a think tank of global reputation on smart grids and smart cities mandate uh, the what is the mandate of this is to advise the government on policies and programs for the promotion of smart grid in india work with national and international agencies in standards development and to help utilities regulators and the industry in technology selection training and capacity building next is about the roadmap in the report what is the roadmap need to be adopted that energy storage systems are technology or system in which electric energy is loaded in and by necessity and can lately be discharged into the network the report estimates the investments in energy storage system for e mobility telecom towers data centers replacement of uh, diesel generators and integration of variable renewable energy into the grid leading to a reliable and low carbon grid in india objectives of the roadmap are comprehensive analysis of the distribution grid level issues and to address them by enhancing grid flexibility through ess to help india meet its emission reduction targets in paris agreement reducing emission intensity up to 33 to 35% from the 2005 level by 2030 so what are the india's emission targets that we have to reduce the intensity of emission by up to 33 to 35% from the 2005 level by 2030 40% non fossil fuel based electricity generation in the energy mix by 2030 to create an additional carbon sink of 2.5 to 3 billion ton avoid import dependency for battery packs and cells other than this uh, some policy guidelines are also suggested in the report that uh, integrate energy storage into overall energy master plan and energy strategy 
This clarifies the role of energy storage and be begins the conversation about competing methods to provide the multitude of services required by the grid. Enable energy storage to qualify for multiple streams of revenue for the individual services it provides to the grid. Introduce time of use tariffs, pay for services tariff and others to eliminate price distortion and increase price transparency. Incentivize development and financing of energy storage and distributed renewable energy projects. Support in a targeted manner, demonstration projects and first movers with loan guarantees low interest loans, grants and others. Some innovative suggestions in the report. Vehicle to grid concept. The vehicle to grid concept can play a key role in grid balancing. Here energy flows both to and from the vehicle turning it to a portable battery bank. The vehicle to grid has been already commercialized in Denmark and the Netherlands. Energy Storage India tool has been developed as a part of this study. The basic function of this tool is to take network load data and optimize the energy storage capacity. It has the capability to analyze penetration of storage and its benefits at a different level, namely feeder, distribution, transformer and customer levels. Now the next topic is ecological fiscal transfer. These kind of, you know, all those topics which are associated with this carbon credit and uh, financing the carbon uh, basically climate change and getting the carbon credit and uh, all this money related issues I am not very confident in writing such answers and every time I read this it kind of adds to my confusion so the topic is ecological fiscal transfers now a paper is published by X agency it is not important but you, if you want I can tell you the name which is Center for Global Development analyzes the state budget to examine whether ecological fiscal transfers has imparted state forestry expenditures. The concept of conditional payments for environmental conservation and ecological fiscal transfers. So what are the conditions for the payments for environmental conservation? That uh, the especially unequal distribution of cost and benefits associated with biodiversity conservation motivates the concept of conditional payments for environmental conservation in which the beneficiaries of ecosystem services encourage land use decision makers to protect or restore ecosystems by making payments available conditional on doing so. This ecological fiscal transfer is a type of conditional environmental payment which involves conditional payment to lower levels, from higher level to lower level. This EFT, which is ecological fiscal transfer, distributes a share of intergovernmental fiscal transfers and revenue sharing scheme according to ecological indicators such as protected areas or watershed management areas. Other modes of conditional payments. What are the other mode of conditional payment? The payment for ecosystem services. It focuses on the beneficiary pays principle and therefore provides an opportunity to put a price on previously unpriced ecosystem services. Reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation plus. It aims to compensate the local people for preserving the loss of forest or their degradation. Other than this, the biodiversity related fiscal transfers are powerful means of reconciling the conservation cost encountered at local level with the benefits of uh, biodiversity conservation at higher levels of governance. EFTs are thus seen as an innovative policy instrument for providing incentives to local government to maintain and increase biodiversity conservation. Next is EFTs have several potential advantages over Red Plus and PES. Payers can take advantage of already established structures for fiscal transfers between level of government, avoiding the need to design new institutions. So what I'm saying is what are the advantages of Red Plus and PES? That we can already take advantage of the established structures for fiscal transfer and we don't need to establish any new designs, institutions and property rights. Then EFT can potentially mobilize larger volume of finance than PES. Then EFT pay across all forested areas and not just contracted areas. And EFT could solve in part the challenges faced in Red Plus 
of uh, translating incentives from national government to more local levels. EFTs could potentially operate in tandem with the international Red Plus payments with the payment from external funders to national government for reducing emission. However, EFTs also have limitations as an incentive mechanism. Money from the EFTs is untied to forestry budgets and can be spent in any sector at the discretion of state governments. They may be designed to equalize budgets across lo local government or to compensate local governments for uh, foregone resource use. Thus, they may be only limited freedom to design EFTs as uh, incentive mechanisms for the increased provision of ecosystem services. Furthermore, EFTs are limited to public sector recipients and does not directly transfer incentives to individual households as PES can. Okay, so next is the development of ecological fiscal transfers in India. So in 1990, Brazil became the first country to introduce EFT and uh, to compensate for municipalities for land use restrictions. Until 2014, the few examples of EFT mostly involved protected areas. But uh, in 2014-15, the world's first EFT for forests were enacted in India. When the 14th Finance Commission added forest cover to the formula using to determine the amount of annual tax revenue distribution by central government to each state. So do you know what is the percentage of uh, uh, given to the forest in the 14th Finance Commission? It is 7.5. It was done primarily to compensate states for the fiscal disability caused by foregone opportunities to convert forests to other uses resulting from the implementation of the 1988 National Forest Policy, an issue consistently raised in the Commission's consultation by states with high forest cover concentrated in the Northeast. So, forest cover proportional funds had previously been made available to states by the 12th and 13th Finance Commission. But the recommendation of the 14th Finance Commission differ from those of its predecessors in three important respects. The 14th Finance Commission recommended a quantum of finance some 30 to 250 times larger. The release of the three quarters of the fund, uh, this is not important. Now next is what are the potential effect of ecological uh, fund transfer in India? Basically fiscal transfer in India, what is it? What are its effects? In the medium to long term, the following actions may occur as the result of a as the result of a sustained forest cover proportional fiscal transfer. State government increase budgets for forest management. State governments increase the use and effectiveness of existing pro-forest policies within their control. State government devise new ways to encourage pro-forest action by local government. So, iska kya effect hai? What is this effect of ecological fiscal transfer? So, basically now see what happens is, now all the states want this money. So, for this what they will do? State government will increase budget for forest management. They will increase the use and effectiveness of the pro-forest policy. They will devise new ways to encourage pro-forest action. Basically, the sector which will attract more money for the states, obviously they will work on it. Then India's EFT are conditional on forest cover alone and have no social and environmental safeguards. Basically, it will be useful to observe India to see whether or not two additional actions occur. Basically, lack of social safeguards promotes repressive and unjust exclusion of local people from accessing forest resources. And lack of biodiversity safeguards promotes reforestation with fast-growing commercial species at the expense of destoration of native forest. Now, what are the policy recommendations? The CDG. What was this CDG study? Try to remember I told you in the beginning of this topic. While acknowledging that it is probably too soon to detect an effect on forest cover, the following observations were made. State government's attention to the fiscal opportunity provided by the EFTs might increase, as might their expectation that forest cover will be retained as an element of the horizontal devolution formula beyond 2019. 
Even so, it is worth considering reasons why the reform might not have a noticeable effect. An offer of increased state revenue in the near future might not incentivize public policy changes today. The fiscal incentive might be too small to influence policy. Or it might be that too much deforestation is beyond the influence of the state government. In this backdrop, the 15th Finance Commission has an opportunity to give states far greater certainty that increases in forest cover will be rewarded with increase in revenue received. It should do so by keeping forest in the horizontal devolution formula for another five years and updating the year for which the forest cover is measured from 2013 to a later year, which is, for example, 2019. Now, the next topic is national guidelines for the preparation of action plan, prevention and management of heat wave. Now, this is very important. So recently, National Disaster Management Authority has released national guidelines for the preparation of action plan for heat wave. But uh, what is heat wave? Heat wave, according to Indian Meteorological Department, heat wave is considered if maximum temperature of a station reaches at least 40 degrees Celsius or more for plains, 37 degree or more for coastal stations and at least 30 degree or more for hilly region. Following criteria are used to declare heat waves based on departure from the normal. So heat wave is departure from normal at 4.5 to 6.54 degrees Celsius. Severe heat wave will be departure from more than 6.4. So for example, for coastal region, it is 37 degree or more. So if it is 37 plus 6.4, then it will be severe heat wave. And... Uh, Based on the actual maximum temperature for planes only, heat wave will be more than 45 degrees Celsius, more than or equal to, and a severe heat wave will be more than or equal to 47 degrees Celsius. To declare heat wave, the above criteria should be met at least two stations in a meteorological subdivision for at least two consecutive days, and it will be declared on the second day. Now, uh, basically, uh, there there have been 32 heat wave affecting 23 states this year. The second longest what? The second longest spell of high temperatures on record. Rajasthan, Madhya Pradesh and Maharashtra were facing extreme heat conditions having experienced the longest spell of dry weather this year. The delayed arrival of the southwest monsoon delayed the respite from heat wave conditions to almost two-thirds of the country. Now, factors affecting heat vulnerability. This include the quality of housing and built environment, local urban geography, resident lifestyle, income level, employment trend, social network, and self-perceptions of risk. Unplanned urban growth and development, changes in land use and land cover, densely populated areas, and increasing urban sprawl and unique challenges associated with it such as urban heat island, Effect in cities are exacerbating the impact of heat waves. Climate change is deriving temperatures higher as well as increasing the frequency and severity of heat waves in India. Now, rationale of heat wave action plan. Heat waves has not been notified as a disaster as defined under the Disaster Management Act of 2005 by the government yet. Heat wave is not even notified in the list of 12 disasters eligible for relief under National State Disaster Response Fund. This makes HWAP, which is Heat Wave Action Plan, highly relevant to be prepared for following reason. Widening geographical expense. Most of the states across, across Northwest India, Gangetic Plains, Central India, East Coast India are affected during the heat wave season. Casualty due to heat wave. It is a silent disaster. According to uh, NDMA, heat wave caused 24,223 deaths since 1992 to 2015 in various states. However, it is likely that these death figure is much higher as heat-related illness is often recorded inaccurately and uh, figures from rural areas are hard to attain. Then vulnerable population of uh, uh, Basically, they don't have uh, water for dehydration, heat and sunstroke. And evidence-based planning with continuous updating is the 
need of the hour. Now, what are the guidelines that are issued? So basically, these guidelines are urge the stakeholders to learn from the past experience and improve interagency coordination and ensure the participation of all. The government engagement. We need to engage government uh, with government regularly with respect to disaster management, municipal uh, health agencies, and etc. Then appointing state nodal agency and officer. Appointing state nodal agency and officer to conduct tabletop exercises, simulations, and drills before the heat season, as well as to ensure coordination among various stakeholders. Then vulnerability assessment and establishing heat health threshold temperatures. Drafting and developing heat action plan. Team preparation and coordination. Implementation and monitoring. Information, education, and communication plays an important role in widely disseminating key messages to communities in advance. Evaluating and updating the plan. After every heat season, the city or state must access the efficacy of the heat action plan, including processes, outcomes, and impacts. Strategies for reducing heat exposures and adapting to climate change long term. That was it about the heat action plan. Now the next strategy will be for landslides. So what you need to know is that our next topic, National Landslide Risk Management Strategy, is on the go. So NDMA again has released National Landslide Risk Management Strategy. Abhi landslide, what is it? Landslide is defined as a movement of mass of rock, debris, or earth down a slope. Landslides are a type of mass wasting, which denotes any downslope movement of soil and rock under the direct influence of gravity. Causes of landslide: undercutting of the foot of the hill slope due to river erosion, quarrying, excavation for canals and roads. Then. external loads such as buildings reservoir highway traffic stockpiles of rock accumulation of alluvium on slopes so this thing was witnessed in jo kerala wala landslide tha in that this was the reason cause then increase in the unit weight of slope material due to increased water content unit weight mein mass bhar jana so this happens in the uttarakhand landslide when uh, basically the glaciers were melting and the unit weight of the uh, soil slope material was increased due to water content and therefore the whole sliding happened then vibrations due to earthquake blasting tra traffic etc causing increase in the shearing stresses slope changes caused by deforestation and the geological survey of india has created a landslide zonation zonation map of india ndma guidelines are being followed for landslide hazard zonation and progressively larger scales for specific areas landslide zoning is the division of hill or mountainous areas into homogeneous special areas slope according to their degrees of actual or potential landslide susceptibility hazard or risk whoo now we need to check the background of this so what is the background india is vulnerable to different type of landslides which causes significant destruction of lives and property as per geological survey of india about 0.42 million kilometers covering nearly 12% of the land area of our country is prone to landslide so how much area is vulnerable to landslide 12% In recent years the incidences of landslide have increased due to extreme weather events environmental degradation due to human interfer interference and uh, other anthropogenic activities resulting in heavy losses of human lives livestock and property This led to a need for formulation of NLRMS NDMA constituted a task force for the formulation of national and local level strategy for landslide risk reduction then what are the highlights of the strategy so landslide ha uh, hazard zonation is one of that uh, is one of the highlights then the landslide monitoring and early warning system awareness program which 
commands a participatory approach from each section of the community involved in the awareness drive then capacity building and training of stakeholders which focuses on identifying target group for training and landslide disaster risk response then creation of landslide uh, center for landslide research studies and management to create a technology techno scientific pool of expertise in the country then preparation of mountain zone regulations and policies the strategy describes the formulation of land use policies and techno legal regime updation and enforcement of building regulations review and revision of bis code which is bureau of india standards building 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 code and guidelines for landslide management samajh mein aaya that was it about the landslide strategy so the next topic is uh, global warming alters rainfall pattern a recent study shows that indo pacific ocean is uh, warming at a rapid rate and changes are impacting global rainfall patterns the indo pacific warm pool has expanded twofold between 1981 and 2018 due to consistent warming This rapid warming and increase in sea surface temperature has altered life cycle of the Maiden-Julian oscillation. While the Maiden-Julian oscillation clouds are spending lesser time over Indian Ocean, their residence time over the West Pacific has increased. This change could drift warmer surface water towards the Bay of Bengal and trigger cyclone activity during post-monsoon period. it could lead to reduced winter rain in north india the global weather, weather pattern have also been altered rainfall over northern australia west pacific amazon basin southwest africa southeast asia has increased there is a decline in rainfall over central pacific along the west and east coast of us north india east africa and uh, yangtze basin in china about uh, maiden julian oscillation it is a wave uh, wave maiden julian oscillation wave is a global band of low pressure area moving periodically from west to east and determines the initiation and intensity of low pressure areas and also oversees monsoon onsets under its footprint it is disturbance of clouds rainfall winds and pressure that traverses the planet in the tropics and returns to its initial starting point in 30 to 60 days on an average Next is uh, World Energy Outlook 2019. The International Energy Agency has released World Energy Outlook for the year 2019. It was in the news because the world's carbon dioxide emissions are set to continue rising for decades unless there is a greater ambition on climate change despite the profound shift already underway in the global energy system. but a plateau for coal along with rising demand for oil and gas would mean global emissions continue to rise throughout the outlook period to 2040 the outlook spans three alternative futures which is stated policies scenario sustainable development scenario and current policy scenario in the stated policy scenario the scenario provides a detailed sense of direction in which today's policy ambitions would take energy sector The sustainable development scenario charts a path fully aligned with the Paris Agreement by holding its uh, by holding the rise in global temperatures to well below 2 degrees Celsius and uh, the current policy scenario is a baseline picture of how global energy markets would evolve if the government make no changes. Next is olive ridley turtles. Recently the Odisha Forest Department banned fishing between November 2019 May 2020 in the state's Gahirmatha Marine Sanctuary to protect olive ridley turtles. The Gahirmatha located in Odisha is known as the world's largest olive ridley rookery. These animals come in lakhs in the waters surrounding the sanctuary in November for mating. The females lay egg in March. Trawlers and boatmen have been directed not to fish within 20 kilometers of the coastline. The olive ridley turtles are the smallest and the most abundant of all sea turtles found in the world inhabiting warm waters of the Pacific, Atlantic and Indian Oceans. These turtles along with their cousin Camps ridley turtle are best known for their unique mass nesting called Aribada 
where thousands of females come together in the same beach to lay eggs. The species is recognized as vulnerable by the IUCN Red List and is placed under Appendix 1 of the sites. They are carnivores and feed mainly on jellyfish, shrimp, snail, crab, mollusk and a variety of fish and their eggs. These turtles spend their entire lives in the ocean and migrate thousands of kilometers between feeding and mating grounds in the course of a year. What are the threats to these olive ridley turtles? Uh, they face serious threat across their migratory route, habitat, nesting beaches and uh, they are still extensively poached for their meat, shell, leather and their eggs, though illegal to harvest, have a significantly large market around the coastal regions. Government Initiatives The Coast Guard has launched the Operation Oliva exercise as part of its annual mission to ensure the safe mid-sea sojourn of uh, breeding olive ridley sea turtles. Operation Save Kurma Species Specific Operation on Turtles by Wildlife Crime Control Bureau The Wildlife Protection Act 1972 and its latest amendments in 2006 provide legal protection to all the sea turtle species occurring in the state. That was it about the November issue. Uh, I'll keep you posted with the December and further months in the upcoming podcast.